Good morning. Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to welcome you as we jump in to the scriptures with one another. We've been going through Jeremiah chapter 29 the past few weeks, and I would just encourage you to go ahead and open there to your Bibles if you have one with you. If you don't, there's some at the end of each row, and if you don't have a Bible uh, in regular English that you can read and understand, that's our gift to you, so take it with you when you leave, and uh, we promise not to try to stop you or ask you any questions. Uh, we also have them up on the screen for you as we go through this morning. But go ahead and mark Jeremiah 29 and uh, put your finger in there. Or if you had the program with you, drop there because we're going to come there pretty quickly. As we get going, I want you to, to think about something with me. I am a dad. I've got five children and uh, we're done. Uh, we uh, ask the last birthday coming up soon. We will have kids that are 11, 9, 7, 5, and 3. And we tapped out with number three. We've got oh, number five, who's our three-year-old. We've got three boys and two girls. Our oldest two are boys and our youngest is a boy and we have two princesses in the middle there. Uh, one of the things that you have if you have five children in that age range in your home is you have a lot of toys uh, because you have a lot of children. That's kind of how it works. Uh, Leisha, my wife, is extremely organized and so toys are all categorized. Uh, two of the largest categories of and tubs of toys in our home are um, Matchbox cars and Legos. Um, the Legos probably are the most prominent in terms of, well, obviously, if you count pieces, there's more Legos than anything else. But we just have a lot of Legos, and our boys are particularly good at Legos, and so we do that uh, together. But it, it's kind of difficult because when they hit about six years old, uh, they became better at Legos than me. Uh, their ability uh, in terms of mechanical and structural engineering catapulted me at about age six. And so now I function as the administrative support. Uh, so if they need a, pull, a part, they tell me, I look for it, and I hand it to them, and all the complex mechanical stuff they take care of. I actually prefer Matchbox cars. One, it's quite simple, and I like cars. I've always liked cars and found them fascinating. When I was a little boy, uh, if you're a guy and you grew up uh, kind of in olden days, I think uh, what I'm about to talk about, if you're under the age of 30, you've never heard of, and so that's okay. The internet has changed things. But we used to get something called the Auto Trader Catalog. Now, Auto Trader is a website now, and I don't even know if they produced the catalog, but they used to produce two editions. There was the one that was current, and then they had another edition that had classic cars. I never cared much for the new ones. One, I knew there was no chance of getting one, but the classic ones, you could find old rust buckets and maybe fix it up, but it was also full with a lot of cool, cool cars. And so I would get the Auto Trader Classic and the J.C. Whitney Magazine. Anybody know about, if you know what the J.C. Whitney Magazine all right, J.C. Whitney uh, was like the cheapest kind of version of Sears mail order after factory parts for old cars. So uh, if you had an old car with a torn seat, you could get a cool replacement. And the magazine was horribly cheaply made, but had a lot of cool things that were also cheap and horribly made. And so that was the thing that as a kid I just loved. I loved Auto Trader magazine and I loved the J.C. Whitney catalog. Together I would spend hours circling things that I was never going to buy. But I've always loved cars. In fact, this morning, uh, one of the greatest moments in uh, being a father happened. I'll tell you about it. My older, older two sons have the ability to spot certain cars, even at the distance, right? It's like a speck on the horizon, and they can see, oh, that's a classic Corvette. Here it comes. And so that happened this morning. On our way to church, it was just the two older boys with me coming to the early service. They spotted over on the side in the distance about a 1978 Corvette come in, and I rejoiced in my spirit 
when my son says, I really like the front end on that Stingray. Oh, it was beautiful. In fact, but I, I, I began spontaneously praising God. I kept my eyes open because I was driving. And it's dangerous to praise God with your eyes closed while driving. But it was really awesome. We, we love cars. Now, here's one of the cool things with cars, particularly if you like sport cars or muscle cars, is that they have a certain look to them. And I remember one time, uh, the boys, I think one of those boys was in the car with me, and, and this uh, car passed us, not driving crazy, but just went by us. And my son said, well, what is that one? I, I don't know that one. And it was the new Dodge Challenger, and so it looks awesome. And, and our, our, my son said, man, that car looks fast. Isn't that interesting? We didn't see the car do anything over like maybe 50 it wasn't accelerating. It wasn't spinning tires. We, don't, we had no idea what it could perform, but the car looked fast. In design world, we call that form and function, and the goal is to marry the two, that something looks the way it's supposed to look and works the way it's supposed to work, and that those two kind of go together. And so a sports car, man, it can't just be fast. It's got to look fast, and it can't just look fast. It has to be fast because that's how form and function work together. What we want to talk about today is a little bit of the form and function of the people of God when surrounded by a culture that doesn't understand or follow Jesus. You see, last week, Pastor Ernie preached for us and, and brought a message really zeroing in on the calling of the people of God when they found themselves in exile, that they were to bless and pray for the city where they found themselves. What we want to go beyond that today is to recognize that in the midst of that calling and command of God for us to do what the people of God do and be who the people of God are, there are some struggles that emerge in that difficult environment. It's really easy to be an obedient follower of Jesus in many ways when surrounded exclusively by other people who love Jesus, who like what you like, believe what you believe, value the things you value, and dream the dreams that you dream. It's easy because there's encouragement and accountability. It's also easy because there's very little opportunity to do anything that you feel like you shouldn't do. The problem with that environment also presents very little opportunity for you to do what Jesus has called you to do. There's very little opportunity for mission if we get in our Christian huddle and we hang out with one another. But the moment that we get kind of airdropped into a difficult environment where there we stand seemingly alone, surrounded by people who don't see the world that we do, who don't see Jesus as King and Savior, and who have a different set of values that they live by, we begin to kind of sense the pressure to conform to the way that the world works. And in that difficulty, something happens that we should be concerned about. We have a natural tendency, I think, to hear messages that we like and not hear messages that we don't like. And in that season of difficulty, false teachers who tell us what we want to hear will emerge. The warning comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that this is going to become a reality. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, Paul says that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So the warning is that there's going to be a moment, probably in a season of difficulty, where we're going to want to draw people to ourselves who will not tell us the truth, but rather they'll tell us what we want to hear instead of the truth. And that's ultimately motivated, he says, by these itching ears, by this desire to hear something that makes life simpler and easier. 
Because the simple fact that Jesus has saved us, that Jesus is transforming us, and that Jesus is sending us into mission, those are difficult statements when we begin living them out. Those are difficult, and we usually want to find a way to fast forward through the hardship to receive the blessing without having to faithfully follow Jesus in order to experience his hand of blessing upon us. And when we get into that predicament, false teachers rise up. And we draw them to ourselves because they tell us what we want to hear. We unfortunately have this natural tendency when we receive new information that we don't like to treat it very skeptically. And to treat new information that we really like as if that is the God's honest truth every time. The unfortunate thing is that's not how it works. So we kind of roll back to Jeremiah chapter 29 where we marked things this morning. Jeremiah has an interesting background as one of the prophets. Jeremiah for years had warned the people of Israel of impending judgment because they were violating the covenant that God had made with them. And no one believed him. Until the moment that the Babylonians did exactly what Jeremiah said they would do. So when Jeremiah sends this letter to the people in exile, speaking as a prophet of God, the people listen because Jeremiah has a level of credibility because what he has said will happen, will take place, occurred. So we're going to begin today in Jeremiah 29 verse 8 as Jeremiah begins to warn the people about false prophets and false teachers. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So we get this little warning here after Jeremiah has delivered a message to the people that there are going to be other people and there are now other people among you who are not speaking to you on behalf of God, yet they claim to be. We learn three things about these false prophets. First, we find that they are deceptive. Second, we find that they are lying. Now, these are different things. Deception is different from saying something that simply isn't true. It is possible to innocently lie to someone else. That is to say that you have information you believe to be true and you represent it as true to someone else even though it's false. So we can say things that are untrue innocently because we've simply believed the wrong thing. That is distinct from being deceptive. Deceptive indicates that not only is there wrong content, but there's wrong intent. That there's a desire to mislead. And so these false prophets not only say what is not true, they say it as deceptive people desiring to mislead. We also learn a third thing about them, that God didn't send them. They are self-commissioned messengers. And they've come and they're bringing a false teaching. We don't know what it is yet. We'll unpack that and I think come to a greater understanding of what they might have been telling the people. But we do know is that the origin and the approach to the message is different from what God says prophecy originates from. So go with me over to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the scriptures tell us how prophecy comes about. How God speaks to his people through the prophets in verse 20. He says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the origination of a prophetic word is not in a self-commissioned messenger, but rather in someone who was sent by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking a message that originated not in the heart of men, but in the heart of God. Now, this is distinct and important to understand that because these false teachers spoke from the wrong source, having originated the message within themselves rather than receiving it from God. They spoke with the wrong motives, desiring to deceive, and they spoke with the wrong message, misleading and damaging the people. Now, false teaching is not just something that theologically kind of stodgy people get concerned about. It's actually something that's very practical that we need to be aware of. Because false teaching, when believed, causes destruction upon the people who believe it and those who love them. I'm going to just give you some practical examples of this. The most prominent real area of false teaching in America today is what we call prosperity theology, this health and wealth idea that, uh, you know, everyone who follows Jesus is going to be rich and healthy all the time. Well, here's some problems with that. Right? I, I I'm, don't have to be a Bible expert to read the New Testament and find out that Jesus and all of the men who faithfully followed him didn't have that kind of life. And so when you, when you just look at it and you go, you know, the, 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 the blessings of being faithful to Jesus are health and wealth, and then you, you find Paul in jail suffering for the gospel without a penny to his name, relying on the gifts of other people, waiting his execution. That doesn't appear to jive. And I, I don't think the Bible kind of comes out and goes, you know the problem with Paul is that he didn't follow Jesus hard enough? That's not the issue. The issue is this principle that if you follow Jesus, you're healthy and wealthy all the time, it isn't true. Now, but here's the problem with it. It's not just that it's silly. It's that it's destructive. So the first church I was on staff at was across the street from Rice University, which also meant that it was in close proximity to the medical center. And so a couple of things were the case. We had a number of people in our church that worked in the medical field. We had doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, nursing students because of our proximity to the medical center. We also would have from time to time people coming through our church body that were living in that area short term while going through treatment. So, so if you live um, out of state and your specialist is at MD Anderson, you moved to Houston for a while. We have been blessed by God to live in proximity to the medical center in Houston and have so much available to us without having to relocate. Not everybody had that. One of the great things to see that is that there are a number of ministries that come around families in those times, but we got to meet families as they would go through that. And the worst possible experience is a family who dearly loves Jesus and has been misled to believe that God has guaranteed them a healing if they believe hard enough and pray the right prayer. Because when that promise that God never made doesn't come true, there is all sorts of carnage. People who doubt that God is faithful to his word, people who doubt that God is good to his children, people who doubt that their faith is genuine because this mystery that wasn't given from God didn't play out in front of them. Because of that, people walk away from the faith and they don't know how to respond to God anymore. But the problem is God never said he would do that. God heals people and God's mighty. And when people are sick among us, we pray and we plead with God to heal them. But we don't presuppose to know what he's going to do. And what we never find in scripture is a guarantee that everyone who is sick gets healed. What we do find is that everyone who believes in Jesus will be raised again to eternal life. That you can take to the bank. 
But when we teach people false promises of comfort and ease, blessing and joy that are not things God has given, and they're not received, destruction and disillusionment land in the wake of the carnage that follows, and it's heart-wrenching. So this isn't just something that we go, oh, that's silly. This is real. So how do we spot these counterfeit teachings? Well, it's difficult to know in Jeremiah 29 uh, what's being addressed. We're not sure. Uh, what we can tell you is a simple premise that false teaching is anything that contradicts with true teaching. So if we start with the truth that Jeremiah is communicating to the people, we can from there kind of reverse engineer to understand what the lies that were being spread were, at least categorically, at least an idea of what they might have been. And so what I want us to do is to double back for a moment, and we're going to dig right back into some of the same content that Ernie preached, because we can't afford to walk away from it or just assume it. And so Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4, the letter to the exiles begins, and we're going to read through verse 7 here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In that simple few verses, I want you to see three key elements of the message God was sending to his people in exile. The first is that God had placed them there. God said, I've sent you here. This is my doing. God did not cease ruling and reigning at that moment. God did not walk away from Israel. God was active. It was just a difficult season, and God had placed them there. The second truth is that they are going to be there a while. So settle in, build houses, and establish a life. This isn't going to be a short stay. And the third central piece of the message is, I have placed you there as my people to be a redemptive people. A people who bless and draw others near to me. We're going to talk about this. Ernie, Amy, Ernie laid out this idea that we're a kingdom, a nation of priests to serve and draw people near to God. And so Jeremiah gives these three centerpieces of his message. I've placed you here. So if that's the truth, the false teaching would be anything that, that says God didn't do this. This was a mistake or God walked away. God doesn't exist. God doesn't love us. You can't trust his promises. If the truth is that we're going to be here a while, then the false teaching is anything that says there's a microwave version to walk us through this. Because I know that what God's cooking seems to be in the crock pot, but if you follow these simple steps, we can accelerate the process and we'll get home quicker. You don't need to build houses. God's going to come rescue us today. That would have been a lie. We also know that if it's true that God had placed them there to bless the people of Babylon, then anything that would be a message calling for God's judgment for the people of Babylon would be a false teaching. He wants them to be a blessing. This is difficult for them because it shattered their expectations. Ultimately, when we look at this message that God has given them, that he had placed them there to bless and to serve the city of Babylon in the hopes that they would draw near to God. There's one way to get that right. And what we'll see in a moment, there's about three ways to get that wrong. 
But if you're going to be able to spot the counterfeit, the first step is to become well acclimated with the genuine article. And so that's what we want to do for a moment. We want to talk again about God's calling for his people in exile and then look at three potential ways to get that wrong and to begin to view God's calling falsely. We want to roll back to Exodus chapter 19 when God called the people of Israel as a nation. So a little bit of of backstory, right? The children of Abraham grow and they become a great nation. Jacob and his sons find themselves in Egypt because of a famine. Joseph, one of their sons who was sold as a slave to the Egyptians, had risen to prominence. And during that famine, God used him and his position of prominence to save and provide for the people of Israel, all of the household of Jacob. And they live in Egypt and prosper. At some point, the Pharaoh doesn't know them and doesn't care for them. And he makes them slaves in order to oppress them for fear that they will rise up against them. God raises up Moses as a deliverer. And God crushes the greatest empire in the known world to set his people free. And they find themselves in Exodus 19, moving through the wilderness as they head towards the promised land. And God is going to draw them to himself, not just individually, but as a people, give them identity and calling. What we read after this chapter in Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments and God establishing the covenant with Israel. So this is an important moment in their history there on the mountain. So look with me in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before, before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down on the Mount Sinai, in sight of all of the people. I want you to think about what's going on here. God is going to establish a covenant with them, and he's going to give them a calling, but beforehand, he says, here's what I want you to do. You're going to be a kingdom of priests for me, and I'm going to set you apart in a unique and special way. So today, consecrate yourselves, cleanse yourselves. And so the people uh, went through some rituals to wash themselves and cleanse themselves. Now, ritual consecration is not about having clean garments. It's about a mental connection with washing yourself in preparation to go before a holy God, recognizing the need to be cleansed, not of dirt that physically stains the body, but sin that spiritually stains our character. And so there's this consecration, this making yourself holy, set apart to the Lord, that precedes the calling, but is directly connected to it. Set yourselves apart so you can be a kingdom of priests. Cleanse yourself so that you are holy, so that you are useful to me as a people of priests. Now, it's interesting that God uses that term for them. See, the people of Israel were going to have a a group of priests from a specific lineage 
from Levi. And they were going to serve in the temple, making sacrifice on behalf of God for the people. So Israel had priests, and the priests would intercede before the Lord, and they would represent God to the people. Now, broadly, though, he said all of the people of Israel are to be priests to the entire world. They are to serve and to bless the nations. That's the calling. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. And then God does something amazing. He takes them and he plants them in Israel with Jerusalem being at the merger of three continents in the most significant trade route in history to be a light among the nations. That as merchants and travelers would come through, they would see a city on a hill shining as a light in the darkness, and they would be drawn to their God because they saw the uniqueness of the people of God and God's hand of blessing and protection upon them. That was the strategy, and so God planted them amongst the nations to be a kingdom of priests, consecrated and called. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 takes the same calling that God placed on Israel and gives it to the church. In chapter 2, verse 9, of 1 Peter. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want you to, to think about what he's just said. He's reaffirmed the calling of Exodus 19 for Israel. It says this is the same calling for the church. And I want you to note that he has bound up two things together. He said, I want you to be a holy people so that you can proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you. Well, to who? To those who don't know him. I want you to, to keep your conduct pure so that those who don't know God will glorify him and be drawn to him. And there's a constant connection between the character of those who follow Jesus and their calling to be a kingdom of priests. This is a difficult thing to get because in some ways it feels like we're moving two opposite directions simultaneously. We, we built a little bit of a visual aid to help you kind of see how, how this works. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, they're surrounded in thinking, value systems, hopes and dreams that represent the world and are dark and foreign and absent and in opposition to God. And God draws you through faith in Jesus and his death for your sin and resurrection. He forgives your sin. He moves you immediately into his family with a hope for eternity. And he begins to work by his spirit of transforming us in a moral sense. That our character and way of thinking and living begins to transform. And we begin to move from worldliness towards godliness through this time of transition. But at the same time that God is removing us from worldliness and changing us into godliness, he is taking us and sending us back to the world as his representatives and ambassadors. So we're simultaneously being transformed to being not like the world and at the same time being sent to the world that we might minister to them. And that's a difficult line to walk because sometimes it feels like I just need to build a bigger wall to keep the world out. And other times it's obvious to me that I need to press in and minister to someone so that they can know Jesus. 
Because every one of us who knows Jesus know him because someone shared the good news that Jesus died for our sins with us and rose again. And God could use us to be that person, but he can't do it from behind the walls of our Christian citadel. We've got to begin to move out. And so this is hard. It's hard because the sin that once entangled me is something that I hate. And to be honest, sometimes I'm afraid of. And so I don't want to be around that. When the darkness is dark, I'd rather hang out with the light. But Jesus has said, I want you to be light amongst the darkness. This is a difficult thing. And it's hard to do both. It's hard to be changed into the image of God and to take up the mission of God simultaneously. And so false teaching comes in and says, let's make this simple and easy on you. Let's pick one or nothing at all. So this is how we do this rightly. We press into God. I think God in his grace to us in 2 Timothy gives us this really helpful illustration of God's cleansing work and his motive behind it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now as you read this, I want you to think about something. When Paul talks about a great house, he's not talking about our viewpoint of a nice home, maybe in a really nice neighborhood or maybe out on some land. It's a freestanding home with running water, hot water if needed. That's not what what Paul's thinking about. When he writes this, a great house would be a large compound in the midst of the city with walls to keep it safe and no running water. Things like water have to be carried in and waste has to be carried out. And so when we say there are vessels in a great home, that means all the way from beautiful goblets in China down to bedpans. All in the same home. With that in view, Paul says this. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Goblets for great wine, bedpans that catch it when it's done. All the way, everything in between. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I want you to think about that. He said, this is, it's like being transformed from one function to another. Being cleansed of that which is filthy so you can be useful for those things that matter. But the cleansing is not so that we can be clean. Because God doesn't cleanse you so you can be clean and look nice in the china cabinet. God cleanses the vessel so that it can be useful. Useful. Not clean to be clean, clean to be helpful and ready for every good work. And so this is what God has called us to, to be simultaneously transformed in our character and in our morality to be like God, to walk in godliness and being sent by God back into the world that he has pulled us out of that we might be useful as his ambassadors on the mission of mercy. Now, with that as the right way, there are three ways we get this wrong. And I think we can kind of guess from from where we go here in Jeremiah 29 that one or all of these were the options. The first is escapism. The desire to simply not think about things. I don't want to hear about persecution in the Middle East and how Christians are killed. That's a downer. I don't want to pray about that. Could you just keep that to yourself? I don't want to hear about the mess in my neighbor's family. I'd rather just believe the lie that they present to everyone and keep the yard clean and the kids well-dressed when they go to school. And then when they divorce and split up, we'll guess that something bad went down. 
but I don't want to walk through that. I got a convenient, easy life, and I'd rather escape all of this junk. People who fall into this escapist mentality will go to church and they'll look for um, self-esteem and emotional experiences and keep their heads in the sand. They're hyper-spiritual with no impact on the world around them. People who fall into escapism are those who simply reject reality. You don't want to think about that. I'd like my religious experience. I want to go home feeling good about things and not be bothered. The second is something called syncretism, which isn't a phrase we use a lot. So think of syncing up or aligning with the world. This is what happens when those professing the name of Jesus embrace the exact values, hopes, and dreams of those who do not believe in Jesus at all. When we decide it's better to go along to get along and fit in because standing out, being separate and consecrated from God, well, that's awkward. People think I'm weird. And I don't like people thinking I'm weird. Syncretism would happen if the people of Israel looked around and said, you know, Babylon's got some good stuff. And if we play our cards right, I think we could get some of that stuff. People who fall into syncretism are those who reject their identity as a chosen and set apart people called to be holy. The third way to be wrong, which to be honest in evangelical circles scares me the most, is separatism. That's the instinct to guard me and mine from anything that could be sinful in the world. To build walls and put uh, barbed wire across the top to keep the sin out. Never realizing that Romans 3 says all the sin that I ever needed to wreck anything resides in my own heart. And no wall can separate me from that or protect my family from that. That's me and I carry it with me. People who embrace this separatist view of the Christian faith reject the people around them for their sin and give no hope of salvation through Jesus. And to be honest, they're kind of excited looking forward to the day of judgment. When I went through Bible college around 2001, we were doing a study on false teaching and false prophets. And that forced me to watch some TV that was allegedly Christian broadcasting. There was a particular guy speaking there who was allegedly a prophet, and in 1994 had made a prophecy that by 2001 hadn't come true. Now, I'll tell you what the prophecy is in a moment, but I just want to preface it with that. By 2001, he said it hadn't come true. He said in the year 2000, something was going to happen. A full year later, nothing had happened. Now, in the Old Testament, the law says you take rocks and you throw it at that guy till he dies. Now, that's not legal in America, so we don't do it. But you would think at least less people would watch his TV show. That didn't happen either. Here was his prophecy from 1994. He said God had told him that in the year 2000, the entire homosexual community in America would be destroyed. Didn't happen. You know what concerns me more, though, than the intellectual reality that what he said was going to happen didn't happen? Is that when he said that, the entire audience erupted in applause. Think about that. A man who allegedly speaks for God says an entire segment of our population, more than 2 million people, will be destroyed in six years, and everyone cheered. The people of God do not delight in destruction. They delight in those who are trapped in sin being redeemed, but we don't celebrate judgment. 
In Micah 6, 8, the scriptures say, He has shown you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, that you do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. Love mercy. We don't delight in judgment. We don't delight in those who don't turn to God and receive grace that should grieve us. But when we have this separatist mentality that we build the wall, we guard us and ours and everyone else literally can go to hell and we're okay with that. That's toxic. It doesn't draw anyone to the Lord. It doesn't transform us into the image of God. And it's an arrogant and unloving view of things that recognizes the sin in everyone else but doesn't address the sin in our own hearts. In fact, it dangerously masks over our own secret sin with this thin veneer of self-righteousness. And I point all of these out because these are real. It's easy for us to just check out. It's easy for us to just want to fit in. And it's easy for us to want to build a wall. And I don't know which one of these Jeremiah is dealing with. But I know that each of us, given to our sin patterns, will be tempted to fall into one of these. That we'll be tempted to, to give in to this. And all of them are dangerous and toxic. All of them are keep us from experiencing the joy of walking faithfully with Jesus, and all of them give us little to no impact or witness in the world. So those who are escapists reject reality, those who are syncretists reject their identity, and those who are separatists reject their mission. But God has called us something deeper, that we live carrying both the form of godliness and fulfilling its function as a kingdom of priests who draw men and women closer to Jesus, who introduce them to the God who changes and transforms men and women, who introduce them to the God who sent his only son to die for sinful, wretched people like us, that they too can know the joy of salvation. It's the merging of form and function together. I think the greatest example in the car industry of the disconnect between form and function was the 1986 DeLorean. Oh man, that was a cool car. Space age lines, gold wing doors. No one had seen that before. The flux capacitor was not standard. That was an after factory addition that Doc Brown made. Interesting thing about the DeLorean. It goes on the list of the top 10 Slowest sports cars ever manufactured. Came equipped with an amazing four-cylinder Volvo engine. They could go zero to 60 in 10.5 seconds. Could run a quarter mile in 18 flat. Roughly the speed of the 2002 Cavalier I used to drive. But doesn't it look awesome? That explains the suspense in the opening scenes of Back to the Future when the terrorists were there shooting at them. We really didn't know if the DeLorean could make it to 88 miles an hour. In the second movie, they needed a train to do it. That tells you it's not reliable. Now think about this. That car looked fast. And it ran like a dog. Here's my fear. I fear that many of us who claim the name of Christ are nothing more than spiritual DeLoreans. It looks good and does not. We have the form of godliness, but denying the power. 
And because so many of us just focus so long on looking right to those who sit next to us on Sunday morning and forgotten that God has called us to engage the world so that they too can know Jesus, our impact on the world around us is diminished. And not because the world changed, but because we walked away from the fight. In the 1960s, we saw the shifting winds in the educational community. And instead of digging in, we started our own schools and we left. And the universities went one way and all the Christian colleges rose up. There's nothing wrong with them. I graduated from one, but I also got bounced around a few state schools as well. But, but we need men and women who love Jesus, who are great thinkers in our universities, and many of them got drawn away. That's an easy response for us, to simply disengage when it gets hard. And I don't know how every one of you has been called to engage. You have to sort through that as a family. You have to think through that and pray through that. But I do know this, every one of you who walks with Jesus has been called to engage. To engage in a way that's redemptive. Mirroring the character of God as we walk obediently to his word. Proclaiming the word of God as we walk obediently to what he's commanded. And loving people in the name of God as we follow our priestly calling. That's what we're here for. Be weary of anything that would make you feel better being a cool looking Christian with some gold wing doors and no impact. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a good and loving God and that you have preached the truth to us through your prophets. Father, I thank you for the warning that false teachers abound and that we need to be faithful. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in obedience, that we would follow you wholeheartedly. I thank you that you have saved us, that you are changing us, and that you have sent us. Father, I pray that we would move faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.